Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show for another exciting episode of this podcast. It is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. This is episode 174 of season three, 239 of this podcast. And I want to read at the top here a little bit from this article that I linked to and talked about in my last episode which you can go back to from yesterday, show no partiality as you hold the faith. Check that one out, talking more about the concern I have, we all should have, regarding the example set by Tim Keller's church in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian. According to reports from Megan Basham at The Daily Wire, The announcement was put out on the website for the church that vaccinated, fully vaccinated congregants will be allowed to sit on the main floor. Unvaccinated congregants will have to sit in the balcony, wear a mask, and social distance. But given the fact that Megan Basham's article is for subscribers only, I want to read just a little bit, just a little selection. I would encourage you to get a subscription to the Daily Wire if you don't already have one. Read the full article. It is very interesting. But here's a little selection in a segment called Worldly Wisdom, titled Worldly Wisdom within that article. Quote, few pastors bring as much depth of understanding to the vaccine mandate issue as Kirk Milloen who, along with shepherding a church in Maui, also happens to be a pediatric cardiologist and was a medical missionary to Liberia during the most widespread Ebola outbreak in history. He tells me that given that the vaxxed are nearly as infectious as the unvaxxed once they contract COVID, it's a nonsensical claim that the first group is putting the second at risk. The only people who are really safe to be around, he says, are those who have recovered from COVID. Quote, I'm afraid the church is just mirroring our society right now as opposed to being led by Jesus Christ. We're afraid of Facebook posts. We have become pleasers of the world as opposed to pleasers of God. That's a powerful quote. They're the only ones who have very good, very durable immunity, he explains, referring to those who've already had COVID. And that has been shown in over 84 studies. Based on this, Milowen believes this love-your-neighbor messaging to push mandates stems not from a theological or scientific rationale, but a social one. Quote, I'm afraid the church is just mirroring our society right now, as opposed to being led by Jesus Christ. We're afraid of Facebook posts. We have become pleasers of the world as opposed to pleasers of God, he says. The driving force of this failure? Shame. Quote, No disease, not even HIV, has been attached to this much shame, says Milowan. If you get COVID, people will say things like, how did you get it? Were you having fun? Did you go to a party? Go to church? What did you do? What spreading event did you go to? There's so much shame associated with it. The fear that has driven ministries to look for ways to baptize mandates 
with religious language comes in part, he believes, from government pressure. And he's witnessed firsthand health departments inexplicably zeroing in on churches as risk spreaders. One nurse in his congregation, for example, became infected while working on the COVID floor, yet health department officials insisted the man must have contracted the virus at church. Quote, they said to the nurse, do you go to church? Milowen recalls, he goes. I was working on the COVID floor. The health department still responded, well, we think you got it from the church. End quote. Milowen believes government officials have focused on observing Christians out of a desire for control. Quote, they wanted everyone to isolate. The churches didn't want to isolate, so public health came up against the churches and vilified them. End quote. Now the desire to prove such vilification wrong may ironically be leading ministries to fail to love their brothers and sisters in the faith. In a move even their more liberal counterparts in the United Methodist Church have so far resisted, the International Missions Board, IMB, of the Southern Baptist Convention recently announced that any missionary or member of a missionary family over the age of 16 must be vaccinated against COVID. Originally it was 12 until outcry prompted IMB leadership to raise the threshold. Yet there is emerging evidence that for younger males, the risk of heart inflammation from the vaccine is higher than the risk of COVID hospitalization. Due to research like this, four Scandinavian countries have stopped administering some COVID vaccines to younger demographics. Despite new studies like this, the IMB has offered no exceptions for teen boys or young adult men to its vaccine mandate. Again, just to reiterate, that's a selection from Megan Bisham's excellent reporting, her excellent article at thedailywire.com. Go check it out. Get a subscription. Read it. Share it. Think about it. But I want to talk about something wildly different in this episode. Putting aside the whole COVID thing for just a moment, I want to talk about family of origin and culture and how those influence us and shape us in ways that we realize and also ways that we don't realize. And to back up and give you a little bit of context for why this is on my mind, I was recently having a bit of a discussion with a friend of mine, a dear friend, whom I love like a brother. And in the course of our discussion, he was giving me some advice on my work situation. And I've gone to him for advice on my work situation a lot over the years. Because especially working in oil and gas, there's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of turbulence in the industry overall. And the uncertainty in the industry, I've talked about this in a recent podcast episode where I went through my 10 years in the oil and gas industry thus far. That was episode 168 of this season on October 20th, if you want to go back and check that one out. But in the course of getting advice from him, I told him at a certain point that I appreciate his advice. I value his opinion. I respect him as a person. He is a dear friend of mine. But I do put a little asterisk beside his advice sometimes because of his upbringing. And it isn't to say that his upbringing has no merit, that it has no value, that it's all liabilities and no assets. That's not it at all. There's some great assets to the way that he was raised with the worldview that he has in part 
from his being nurtured by the parents he has in the context that he was nurtured. But this friend of mine, he was a bit offended by this. And that's led to a back and forth over the past couple of days in which we're trying to explore whether that's fair. Is that fair to put a little asterisk next to advice that you get from people based on what you know of their background, their biases, their experience, their formative years spent in such and such a way. Now, I think that can go both ways. You can say, well, this person has some really great experience that gives them insight, gives them more of a familiarity with certain things than I have. And so I'm going to defer to them on these things that they're more of a subject matter expert than I am on. Going back to the oil and gas industry example, you could say, well, it's all the oil and gas industry. Drilling, fracking, facility construction, commissioning, production, midstream, where you're transporting it to facilities where it's going to be cleaned up, processed, refined, and ultimately, at the end, put into a marketable form. If that's natural gas, it might end up in your house, heating your home through the winter. It might end up in your propane tank, allowing you to grill hot dogs and hamburgers in the summer. It might end up in your fuel tank on your car or your truck or your SUV. Each one of those aspects of the oil and gas industry is similar in some ways, but very different. And I've found this out in more than just theory, moving from the upstream side, the production side, to the midstream side in the past couple of years. There are advantages to being in the midstream side, for instance, where there's a lot more stability. There's a lot less uncertainty, even though there's still some uncertainty just by virtue of being in the industry at all. There are dangers, certainly, but there's a lot more automation. There's a lot more complexity to the way that facilities are constructed and the way they operate and the way they're controlled versus a well site. Well site automation versus plant automation has a lot of similarities, but it has a lot of differences. And usually because you've got more eggs in fewer baskets, with plants, you have more automation because you've got more complexity in what it is that you're trying to do with the gas, in this case, that you're transporting and processing and then sending along. You are going to have a more complicated control network, a more complicated PLC program. And so I could say somebody who's been in the oil and gas industry like I have for 10 years has the same amount of oil and gas experience, broadly speaking. But what I've found is my being in the midstream gas side for only two years, two years plus now, but two years for a nice round number, I don't know as much about midstream as somebody who spent the entire 10 years of their oil and gas career in just the midstream side. Somebody in just the midstream side has experienced 
and become familiar with and become probably a bit of an expert with the ins and the outs of processing natural gas. They understand the cryo process better than I do, for instance. They understand the complexities of working with NGL and condensate better than I do, for instance. But vice versa, if you were to put me and a compatriot who both have 10 years, but this guy's got 10 years of midstream experience, and I've got seven years plus of upstream side experience on a well site, I would know my way around pretty quickly. Even if some of the particulars were a little bit different, I would know, okay, this does this and that does that. And then it goes over here and this is what we do with it. And I would understand the logistical challenge of lots of well sites being spread out over a broader area. More baskets with fewer eggs in each basket. And so if I were getting advice on a process question, on the midstream side, I would defer to somebody who had the experience that I don't or the greater quantity of experience than what I do on the midstream side. But likewise, if I were on an upstream location on a well site and we're working with automation and there's a little bit of a mix of automation and process questions and logistical challenges for the well site, I would be far less likely to defer to someone who has spent their 10 years in the midstream side, the midstream gas side. I'm probably going to take the lead as we're trying to figure things out, and I'm probably going to be able to answer some questions that they can't, quite frankly. It doesn't mean they can't learn. doesn't mean they know nothing. doesn't mean that everything they know fails to translate, but it does mean that I may ask for their advice in the one context and I may be the one giving advice in the other. And so bringing this back to the discussion I've been having with my friend, let's take all of that that I just laid out and let's move it from oil and gas analogies to questions of family culture, family dynamics, or national culture, or regional culture, or church culture. If I grow up in a family where I've got one parent from Florida, the panhandle of Florida, hailing from Scots Irish stock, I'm descended from Scottish chieftains and barons, and if my genealogy studies are correct, some of the first kings and queens of Scotland. And that has an effect. And on my dad's side, I'm descended from Mennonite stock, as far back as I can tell, coming from Switzerland. And so there's some Swiss culture that is distinctive from other national, regional cultures in not only Europe, but the world. And there are some particulars regarding Scottish culture, which are particular and are distinct from England, for instance, or Ireland, for instance, much less France or Germany or Italy or what have you. Then you put in the extra of just family culture, 
hey, this family, they handle things in a certain way and they have these certain values and that family over there handles certain things in a different way and they have a different perspective, a different way of going about things, talking through things and working on things and supporting each other, et cetera, et cetera. Given my context, you might say, hey, Garrett has this background. I think he's going to know a thing or two about X, Y, and Z that other people might not be as familiar with in this particular way. And there's an upside to that and there's a downside to that. People who are way stronger and they've got way more of an influence one way or the other, say for instance, if somebody were to immigrate to America from Switzerland, both their families are Swiss, their mom's side, their dad's side, Swiss reformed, let's say, they're going to have a certain perspective which might have some similarities with mine, but it's going to be very different by virtue of them being from another country, having two parents from that country. If they grew up in a fairly homogenous theological tradition where there wasn't a lot of debate and back and forth, it's going to look different than the way that I grew up. And so... I don't think there's anything terribly controversial about saying, within reason, we are shaped by our family of origin. And by that, I mean the house we grew up in. Let's keep it small and then work out from that, build out from that. Your parents made choices in how they raised you. And it isn't even necessarily a one-to-one that, you know, they got those just uncritically passed them on one-to-one ratio from their parents. You know, my grandparents didn't raise my mom on the one hand or my dad on the other hand quite like how I was raised. And by turn, my wife and I, we don't raise our children quite like either my parents raised me or my wife's parents raised her. There are things that we borrow and there are things that we say, you know what, I wish mom and dad would have handled this differently So we're going to handle it differently. And yet I'm reminded of this scene from the cartoon Boondocks. I don't watch the show, never have. But a coworker of mine showed this to me here a few months back. And I keep thinking about it. And it's an interesting observation. Take a listen. Well, what I'm saying is that there are known knowns and that there are known unknowns, but there's also unknown unknowns. Things we don't know that we don't know. What? Say what again? And cut. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson, eloquent as ever. I had to be careful there and snip just the part without the f bombs. So you're welcome. But uh, yeah, I mean, what he's saying there, it makes sense. There's We have known knowns, there's known unknowns, things that we know we don't know, and there's also unknown unknowns. That's things we don't even realize we don't know. And I would say for the vast majority of people who are not examining themselves, are not students of their own hearts, as Jeremiah Burroughs would say, or as he did write and say and preach in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, or as John Owen would say, in Of Temptation, which I just finished yesterday, by the way, another famous Puritan 
preacher, pastor, thinker. Most people are not really students of their own hearts. And even among Christians, all too often we don't examine closely what it is that's going on inside of us and why. Where did this come from? Are we being conformed to the pattern of this world or are we being transformed by the renewing of our minds? When it comes to our family of origin, sometimes it can be hard to know whether, on the one hand, we are following a basic family culture or whether that family culture, in turn, in some ways, represents conforming to the pattern of this world. And maybe to make it even more complicated, when you come from an ostensibly Christian family, It can be difficult sometimes to know whether the ways of thinking, the ways of relating that you grew up with are biblical, whether those are thoughts which have been taken captive to Christ, subjected to the gospel, subjected to God's word, or whether they actually represent being conformed to the pattern of this world. But they've been baptized as, I like that phrase from the Megan Basham article at the Daily Wire. They've been baptized with religious language. We're acting like the world right now, but we have come up with very spiritual sounding excuses to justify what we're tempted to do, but to give it cover, to give it a veneer of respectability, to Christianize it. And again, Going back to my original point, I'm not saying if you put an asterisk beside my advice, for instance, that that means you don't trust my advice at all. It doesn't mean that you just dismiss it out of hand any more than if I put an asterisk beside your advice, I'm dismissing it out of hand. But how else are we able to subject every thought to Christ? How else are we able to test the spirits? How else are we able to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Christ Jesus as Christians, except that when we get counsel, we make sure that it is, in fact, godly counsel, for one. If we get advice, it sounds wise, it sounds like wisdom, we do what Frodo does in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. I know what you would say, he says to Boromir, and it would seem like wisdom, but for the warning in my heart. Boromir replies, warning against what? We're all afraid, Frodo, but to let that fear drive us to destroy what hope we have, don't you see that is madness? And you know how the scene concludes. If you've seen the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, then what's wrong with you? But the advice in the council that Boromir is giving to Frodo is affected by his loyalty and devotion to his father, Denethor, steward of Gondor. And if you wanted to take this as an analogy, as a metaphor for the Christian life, although supposedly J.R.R. Tolkien hated that, he hated that people interpreted his Lord of the Rings novels as allegory. He hated allegory, he thought. But I, I don't see how you can help interpreting 
Lord of the Rings as allegorical. He might not have wanted it to be interpreted allegorically. Don't overthink it, guys. But nevertheless, I take this little scene here and I transpose that onto my own circumstance. And I say, I'm going to look for counsel on such and such. And I have some expectation of what kind of counsel I'll get from certain people. And that's why I go to them. But that's the good and the bad. That's the trustworthy and also the asterisked advice. And I just, again, I don't see any way around putting an asterisk on the advice that we give for one or the advice that we receive for another. I don't see any way around as a Christian subjecting all of the above to God. You know, look at Job and his three friends who start out so well, just being with him in his time of pain and loss and suffering. And then they start trying to give him advice and they start trying to correct him because clearly he must have made a mistake for things to be going the way that they are. Surely he must have sinned and he's unrepentant. And so they think the best way they can help him is to get him to repent, get him to fess up and turn from his wicked ways. The only trouble is that's not what's going on at all. And would he have been better off to say, well, you guys are true friends. You've proven it. You've demonstrated that by being with me in my time of need for so many days, I'm just going to do whatever you say. I don't, I don't know how it's true that I sinned and brought all this on myself, but I'm just going to take your word for it. I'm going to forgo my own critical thinking, my own judgment, my own intimate knowledge, which is far more intimate, might not be perfect, but it's far more intimate regarding who I am and what I've done and what led up to this than what you have, however well you know me, unless you're God himself who sees the inner workings of my heart and my mind. You're working on even more partial knowledge than I am, perhaps. Of course, it wouldn't have been good for Job to have taken their feedback uncritically. Of course, it wouldn't have been much less would it have been good for him to have taken his wife's advice uncritically, curse God and die. But alas, I digress. Finishing off this episode and touching on, again, the oil and gas piece, and again, the advice piece, I am considering an opportunity that may be mine if I accept it. And this opportunity would involve a rotating schedule, two weeks on, one week off, two weeks in either Williston or Watford City, North Dakota, starting soon, God willing, and one week off at a time. Now, the one week off at a time, that would be great. And as my brother points out, when I go to him for counsel, when I would be off for a week, I would really actually be off. But those two weeks off away from my family I have to think of it that way. Two weeks off from my family. One week on with my family. Two weeks away, one week back. That's a difficult decision. That might be the only opportunity that I have near at hand to make ends meet right now. And I'm reminded of when I first got into the oil and gas industry back in 2012. Just to set this up, even though I've told the story before, for any of you that didn't hear it or don't remember, 
the Williston Basin was booming in 2012. And everywhere you looked, there were man camps, which were sketchy and ramshackle. There were parking lots and farmer's fields full of RVs and campers, too many of which were poorly winterized. And their owners found that out once the coldest parts of winter hit. Pipes froze, burst, etc. But what few places for rent, homes, apartments, single bedrooms in somebody's basement, what few places for rent there were, were very expensive. Very expensive. I'm talking $1,500 a month to rent a single room in somebody's basement in Williston, for instance. Start looking at renting a house for a whole family, for a wife and four children. And you can imagine just how far out of reach that was going to be for us. But I knew that there was opportunity because I had sought counsel from a cousin of mine who worked in Williston. I had had encouragement from an aunt of mine who reached out. And again, God bless her for it. She still touches base with my wife from time to time. And I really appreciate that. But it was a trade-off. There was a temporary arrangement that I came out just by myself. And I bought a sleeping bag. And I was prepared to just sleep in my sleeping bag in my car if that's what it took to get out of our bad situation in Southern Ohio. And I can't tell you how many men I've talked with over the years when oil was still booming, who were hard up for work in Southern Ohio still, couldn't find a decent job. And when I say decent job, I mean decent working conditions and sufficient pay. Because there are so many people out of work, because the economic depression in that area is so severe, has been so severe since 2008, it's recovered somewhat, but it's still not great. Because the economic conditions are so bad, employers offer very depressed wages and not great benefits and not great advancement opportunities. And so a lot of young people go elsewhere. They move elsewhere outside of the area. But some young people are afraid to move out of the area because of fear of the unknown and because they would be leaving their families, their extended families if they're married. And I encouraged so many young men, hey, come on out here. I can help you get connected with a good job, get you started, show you the ropes. No, I, I don't think I could ever do that. Well, yeah, but you just finished telling me how unworkable your current situation is. The math doesn't work. The prospects are not going to get better from here. You're going to have to think outside of that little box of Southern Ohio if you want a better circumstance. If you want to change your fortunes, you're going to have to work for it and you're going to have to put yourself out on a limb. No, I yeah, thanks, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. Okay. But I did. I did it, and my doing it paved the way for several family members, several family members to follow suit. Because as opposed to some people who didn't have any family in the area, my brother, my brothers-in-law, my cousins did. Once I was out there, they did have a connection. They did have family nearby to spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with. 
to get together for their birthday with, to go and check in with when they were feeling alone and tired and just needed somebody to talk with, a familiar face. But what came before that was three months of not sleeping in my car, thank God, but three months of living with my grandparents in Glendive, Montana. And God bless them for opening their home to me. There were some connections that were called in because we did find a house to rent, small two-bedroom house up on the plateau. I would still say that time when we were renting that house up there was among the happiest times in my life, my family's life. Not a lot of square footage in terms of inside the house, but outside the house, nearest neighbor five miles away, beautiful. So, so peaceful up there. And it took three months to find it. It took three months before I was able to get connected. And it might have been that I just put everybody in an awkward spot by saying, I'm coming out here and I'm going to find a job. Oh, and I found a job and I'm working for ConocoPhillips now. Sweet. I'm making two and a half times as much as I've ever made anywhere else per hour. And I'm getting overtime and I'm charging for my drive time. And I get a company truck and a company phone and a laptop and keys to the kingdom and a career path, making six figures with an associate's degree and no prior experience. It took three months to find the right connection at the right time. Previous renters weren't working out. They had to be evicted. And then I am able to bring my family out. I'm able to get my wife and my children out. And God bless our church in Hillsboro, our church family, who swooped in and helped pack everything up and load it into the U-Haul and some of the people back in Ohio in passing, one person, I should say. I don't know how many more were represented by this one person. But this one person that we knew from church, had known for a long time, Lauren grew up with, made a comment in passing about me having abandoned my family. And this is like a year and a half after I've got them out there. And she's almost dismissing me. Not asking for an explanation, not knowing what the context was, not knowing how bad things were and that it wasn't sustainable for us to stay where we were at, not thinking to ask. If I had asked her for advice, which I wouldn't have, but if I had asked her for advice on the front end, hey, do you think I should do this? I know what her answer would have been based on the feedback she gave me after the fact. It would have been entirely unhelpful. So I didn't ask her for advice. And if she had given advice unsought, unasked for on that, in the absence of a better solution besides just stick around and hope something works out, I'd have put an asterisk in it. Easy for you to say, you've been from here forever and you have other plans. You've got other avenues to explore. You're not in the same situation that we are. You don't understand. So what did I do? I moved my family to Eastern Montana, but it took three months. And my current job situation is not tenable. It's not sustainable. And I've done all that a person could do to try and reform the job situation. And it has made 
the job situation worse by virtue of some intractable personality issues in other people. And it is what it is. And I'm at peace with it now. I was really frustrated. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm going to have to find something else to do. I'm gonna, this, is not, this is not working. It's not sustainable. It's not working out. And I might have an opportunity for however long. I don't know. I hope if the two weeks on, one week off thing ends up being the route I have to go for now, I hope that it's not for long. And some people aren't going to understand that. How could you? How could you leave your wife and your children to fend for themselves for two weeks at a time? What are you thinking? Well, what I'm thinking is I have to provide for my family 52 weeks out of the year. And if I'm not able to get something else, and I don't, I don't have five job offers in this area, I'm going to have to take what's available. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And some people who have a lot more avenues, different avenues, the Lord has dealt them a different hand, they might look at that and they say, well, what about this, 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 and this? And they don't realize they're banking on a number of assumptions that just are not true. Those are variables which do not have the same value in my equation. And so they look at it and they say, well, surely there's something else you could do. Like what? And thus I say, I put an asterisk beside the advice that I get from people. And I think everyone should do that. I put an asterisk beside the advice that I give to people or my own thought process. That's part of why I get advice from people is I put an asterisk beside my own thought process. Now, I might come back to it in the absence of a better idea at the end of the day, but nevertheless, I got to leave it there. Speaking of work, got to run. Need to go find some parts, a surge protector, an antenna, the attendant cables. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.